Well, good morning. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and 17, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, 16 and 17. This is observing of three specific feasts where they had to go to Jerusalem. So he's filling them in on the three times a year that they had to show up um, at Jerusalem to do everything else they could do back in their own towns, but these are the three times they at least had to, they had to make it to three of these events. Um, and these are the three that they're talking about. Um, one of them is the Passover. That's the first one. Uh, um, when we have communion, there's a real strong correlation to uh, the Passover, which I'll talk about a little bit. Um, um, and so it's, it begins in verse 1, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, that is, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of uh, Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice uh, the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. That's the one thing I want you to do. I want you to keep this Passover feast because I don't want you to ever forget that I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that led you out of Egypt. And the reason we eat unleavened bread, he says, is because you had to leave quickly. And you had to, you'd have time for the bread to rise. You ate flat bread. Um, and I want you to do it all the time so that you never, ever forget all the days of your life that I've brought you out of Egypt. Egypt represents the world to us. As Christians, God has taken us and delivered us from the world. Um, it was a quick, radical departure from the world, hopefully. Um, and we left without sin. Uh, that's what leaven represents. It represents sin. Um, some don't think it does. There's some commentary, uh, commentators that uh, believe it represents influence, but um, for the most part, uh, throughout Scripture, you'll see it used as a, a replacement for sin. Leaven comes into bread. It begins to rot the bread. It fills it with holes. It puffs it up, and that's what sin does in our lives. It begins to rot us from the inside out, and only till heat is applied does that rotting process stop, and so on. So if you're a baker, there's a whole lot of... There's a whole lot of Jesus in baking. You can see that. Um, and so Jesus is that for us. He's our deliverer. He's the Passover lamb. Um, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Um, he calls him that, uh, himself that. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, he tells the guys when they're having their first Passover meal together, their last Passover meal together, I should say. Um, he describes the bread that they're having at that meal. He breaks it, said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. So again, referencing himself to the flat bread, the leaven-free uh, leaven bread. So Jesus is our Savior. He's our, he's our lamb. He's our perfect spotless lamb that's uh, offered up for us, and there's no sin in him. And so God says, until, you know, until Jesus comes, um, I want you to do this in remembrance of the sacrifice that I provided for you in Egypt. Okay, that was, that's the lamb, the blood that was put on the doorposts of the homes uh, to, to keep the angel of death from entering. And that, of course, was a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to do for us. Jesus died on the cross for us. We apply the blood to the doorposts of our hearts, and he keeps the angel of death from us as well. And so Jesus likens himself to the bread of life as well as that broken bread. And so they're supposed to do that. I want you to do that. Now, when you eat the meat, I don't want you to ever 
uh, leave any of it until, twi- until morning. I want you to finish it all up. It has to be completely devoured. Um, there's no leftovers. There's, it's a one-time opportunity. Um, as long as you're alive and breathing, you have the opportunity to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and apply His blood, His sacrifice of the cross to your heart. But after that, there's no, there's no opportunity. You don't get to show up in heaven or whatever, the, the, the judgment seat, and, and get to choose at that point. It's now or, or not. Um, we believe by faith. Um, after that, it's believing by sight, and it's no longer valid. And so we have to believe by faith. Our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and you've heard that this morning now. Uh, you know that you're accountable um, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so I want you to do this, he says. Every year, you need to show up and do this. The next one is, you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, uh, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight. And at going down of sun, at that time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So it was a week-long little festival that they'd have. Um, and they go to their tents afterwards, and uh, the kids would ask questions, why are we doing this? And the parents would teach them all about the history of the meal and the day and the, why we're here for a week and why we're in tents and so on, and, um, and explain that to them. It was a great time for the family. And I think that's important for us to still have those kinds of traditions um, in our families, that an opportunity to talk about what God's done in your family, in our family. You could use Christmas, you can use Easter, you could use Thanksgiving. Some of those are already kind of pre-programmed into our schedules, um, but there's nothing wrong with having your own, a different one, you know. Um, this is the day that, you know, dad got saved or mom got saved or um, remember when you got baptized, that was after you received Christ. Just reminders is what they are. All these Passovers, all these feasts, um, every ritual in, Old, in the Old Testament is just a reminder. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having those reminders. He doesn't want us to wallow in our sin and to remember our sin and and to relive our sin, but he does want us to always remember that we were brought out of our sin. That's important. I've been delivered from that. Um, I've been delivered completely. Past, present, and future sins have all been taken care of at the cross. And that's why we have communion as often as we do anyway. A lot of churches have it every Sunday, and, and you can have it as often as you want. The Bible teaches as often. There's no time limit. that We have it once a month. And we do that to remind ourselves that we've been delivered. We've been set free from Egypt. Our sins have been forgiven, and, and we need that. And God knows we need that. Um, we have learned it since we were youth, um, most of us. Um, but we need to be reminded of it that it's still valid, and I'm still as innocent now in the eyes of God. I have just the same amount of righteousness as Christ, which is an amazing thing to remember, and he wants us to know that. Verse 9, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before me, uh, before the Lord your God, uh, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So this is another one, the week, uh, uh, Festival of Weeks, or the Feast of Weeks. 
Um, this is the harvest time, your first fruits. Whenever that happens for you, count seven weeks and you bring up your sacrifice or your offering, your free will offering to the Lord. Even back then, free will offering. Um, and it needs to be a joyful one. God loves a joyful, a cheerful giver. Um, it needs to be from the heart. Um, and that needs to be done. And I want you to do that every year also. That's another time I want you to come before me and recognize that uh, I've delivered you. Again, he brings Egypt up in the, even in this week's, this seven weeks. Because God provided for them in the wilderness. For all the time they were in the wilderness, for 40 years, he provided for them and took care of them. Their shoes never ran out. There was always food. Someone estimated how many train cars of food, food would have to show up in the desert every day to feed these million-plus people out there. Um, and they didn't slaughter because they came into the land with cattle. Um, so they weren't just devouring what they brought out. They, they were actually just being taken care of with the manna and the water that came out of the rock. And so, God, I want you to, rem to be reminded of that, that, um, you know, nowadays we have jobs, we have different kinds of way of making income. Um, it depends on your job and your situation. But never forget it's manna and water out of the rock. that um, could always be taken away. It's never secure. Uh, we have our work because God's given us that work. Um, and he wants us to remember that even as Christians, um, New Testament that uh, when we bring our free will offering, you do that. And we discussed that in great detail on Wednesday and I think last Sunday as well. Okay, verse 13. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. This is probably the best one for the kids. They'll like this one. When you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you, your son, and your daughter, your male servant, and your female servant, and the Levite, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. He, he says all those people because he doesn't want anybody left out. Oh, when it comes to these feasts, it's all equal. We should be celebrating equally. Um, families aren't more important than single people. Single people aren't more important than orphans. Orphans aren't more important than widows. None of that. They're all together in this, in Christ. We're all one. And so I want you to all celebrate. Um, but don't leave anybody out. Uh, you know, make sure they're all celebrating. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. On Wednesday night, that was the key theme um, in our book that we've been studying there. Um, uh, Philippians, or no, is it Philippians? Yeah, Philippians. Uh, joy. Uh, people had come in and began to steal the joy of the Philippian people. They were saved, they were born again, they were so excited to worship God, and then people came in and tried to take that, wipe that smile off your face, kind of folks. Um, and throughout that book, he says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And God's never changed. He's always wanted us to rejoice in him. He's never even in the Old Testament, because some people have that idea of the Old Testament. Oh, that's a bummer. That's a downer. A lot of wars, a lot of fighting, a lot of, a lot of bad things happening back there. A lot of plagues, you know, kind of thing. Well, a lot of plagues because people weren't rejoicing in God. A lot of wars because people weren't rejoicing in God. They were rejoicing in other things. They were doing other things outside of God. And so, God's always called us to rejoice in Him. Always supposed to be the, the most joyous people on the earth, to be, in, to be one of His sons or daughters. He's always called us to that. Um, and so you've got to check yourself every now and then um, to make sure that you're not, you don't have that face. You know, uh, There's a lot of bad things in the world. And there's a lot of things to be sad about, for sure, no doubt. But not when it comes to God. It should always be a time of rejoicing when you think of what He's done for you uh, and myself. Um, and for our country or for our family or whatever, there's always a reason to rejoice. Um, no matter what we're going through, um, there's joy. And so he tells them that. I want you to rejoice. I want the kids to do that, to joy that. They would sleep out there um, in these Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, 
they called it. And they'd make tents and they'd sleep outside to remind themselves that they were in the desert for 40 years and cared for by God. Pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. And so it was a big camp out session for the kids, a wonderful time for them. Um, and they'd ask questions about it and the parents would teach them and it's just a real good family time, important. Uh, verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. That's the fourth time he said that. Remember, they're going to come into the promised land and pick Jerusalem. We know that, but they don't. Um, to be his, that's where you all gather. A single place to gather. For the most part, throughout the year, you're on your own. And you worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you're on your own. But there are times when I want you to come together as a group. And I want you to worship me together. At least three times, I want you to all get there. Okay? Um, very similar to what we do. We, we live for God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I hope we do. We're the same out there as we are in this building here. But occasionally, for some of us twice a week, for some of us once a week, we come and we worship together. Um, and, and that's important for us. He tells us to not forsake the assembling together the brethren, as is the manner of some. Some people just, they just don't like people. And, and they probably have a really good point, <laughs> to be honest with you. People can be mean, and, and uh, churches especially aren't, aren't well, they, they're not the greatest sometimes. Um, it just depends on the people. It's not the church's fault. It's not the building's fault. It's not most people's fault, but you do tend to run into people that you'd rather not see. It can happen. But if you're coming there and you're afraid of people, you, you, you need to make sure that you're coming to worship God. Um, it doesn't matter who's sitting next to you. It doesn't matter what they're like. Uh, we come together because we worship God. Um, and so God knows that. I, I don't want you to stay segmented because he's going to divide them up into different lands, into different people groups, and so, you know, uh, uh, the tribe of Judah and, 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 and so on, Dan and, and all these other tribes. But I don't want you to be individuals. I want you to be together you know, as a family. You, know, you have your own territory, but I want you to come together. God wants that for us. There's a, there's a lot of growth that takes place when we come together. Um, God's not content leaving us where we are. Uh, I want you to grow together. And you grow together by being irritated by one another sometimes. Um, you learn to forgive by being around people that need to be forgiven. You know, uh, these are things that you can only get. You can never learn how to forgive people unless you're around people that offend you. You'll never need to forgive anybody, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm perfect company. I'm by myself, you know. Uh, you've, you've, you've got to learn long-suffering <laughs> uh, because there's people that are sufferable, <laughs> Um, that's just how it is. And, and those are very, very good attributes. It's, it's, you know, we, we pride ourselves in the Midwest on work ethic. We really want to work hard around here, and we want to teach our kids to work hard and to persevere, uh, you know, picking up hay if you're a bale, if you're a baler, you know, if you're the, the square bales. Um, that's a hard job, and if you can go all summer, that's something you'll tell people, and they'd still do, until you're 90 years old. I remember when I, when I picked up hay that year, you know, it's, it's like a rite of manhood to do something like that, a rite of passage. Great. There's also spiritual picking up of hay. Sometimes it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of sweat involved, and there's not a lot of pay involved. But there's something about going through it that is a growing thing for you. You'll never be the same after these things. You're a different person. Little things don't bother you. Anybody that's baled hay or picked up hay, I don't even know the right term, I detasseled. I never picked up hay, so I guess I can't say that. But I made it through. De and, okay. So I detasseled, 
and um, and I, everything was easy after that. <laughs> Every job was easier after that. I'm short. It's not a good job for someone who's short like me. This corn's 12 foot tall, and you're detasseling these things. It's like, I, what do you mean speed up kind of thing? The only way I'm going to speed up if I straddle it and lay it all flat and I pull off this way. There's no way to you know, bend these stocks over and get this. It was hot, sweaty, get cut up. Um, bailing hay is very similar. Guys, spiritually speaking, we've got to go through the tough things. You need to. It makes the little things a lot more tolerable and much more laughable, to be honest with you. Um, when you go through something big in your life, the little things just don't matter. When you go through a surgery or some kind of illness or something, and then all of a sudden the paper doesn't show up on Sunday like it's supposed to, you don't complain about it anymore. Where's my paper? Because that's, that's all you had to complain about before. But now you've got a bigger thing. Look, I'm breathing today. You know, <laughs> paper, <laughs> good. I don't have to read the bad news then. I mean, you look on the bright side. God wants us to grow and to go through these things. All right, verse 18. Um, I want you to come up three times a year. Uh, verse 17, every man shall give as he is able according to the... This is verse uh, 17, sorry. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord which uh, your God, uh, which he has given you. So keep that in mind. Verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates that the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. Then they shall judge the people with, judge, with just judgment. In other words, I'm going to give you the laws and you have to apply those laws and judge accordingly. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, and you sh- you, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. In other words, you'll lose a whole lot if you begin to pervert justice. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. He puts those two together. Both are perversions. Uh, justice he doesn't want perverted. I want you to apply it. Everybody's treated equally under the law. Um, a poor person doesn't get a better deal just because they're poor. Breaking the law is breaking the law. A rich person doesn't get a better deal because they're able to pay their way out of it. The law is the law, so on. Um, But also, when it comes to worshiping God, I don't like any mixture. I don't want you blending stuff together. We, We wiped out all this stuff before, not for you to replant it and rehash it and build it up again. I want it completely gone. Don't put these sacred pillars up around my altar. My altar's my altar. That's it. Um, we don't get to add to that, and God is not happy with that. Um, never, ever do that. And so to think today um, that we can add some things to the, to the Christianity period, to what Christ has prescribed in the New Testament for a way to worship is, is foolishness. Um, God's as unhappy with it now as he was with it back then. We have to do what his word tells us to do. We don't get to add or, or take away. Um, And so don't do that, he says. Don't be planting these sacred pillars. It's not okay to blend. I I don't want that pagan worship around me. Chapter 17. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God uh, a bull or a sheep that has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. In other words, uh, every offering, every sacrifice was a picture of Christ. Um, And since he was perfect and had to be perfect, you can't bring any blemishes or defects which represent sin. You can't do that. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman, either one, who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, 
who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven, stars, uh, which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear it, and then you shall inquire diligently. So you hear the rumor, someone's done this, and then you've got to inquire about it. Make sure you, you know, do the detective work that you need to do. Find out um, whether it's true or not. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed the, that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Death penalty. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you had to have two or three. You couldn't have one, and you, you don't want to keep going for four, five, and six. Once you reach three, that's it, because you know how trials can go. Um, we can just bring them on and on and on. No, if you get two or three witnesses, eyewitnesses, then that's, that's enough. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So those who cast the first stone are the ones that actually saw what took place. Now I bring that up because that has to do with the woman caught in adultery. There's a whole thing going on there that we're not sure why. What happened there when she was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus... And Jesus told them, whoever casts the first stone, go ahead. Whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. The, the questions arise, why didn't the two witnesses who saw it cast the first stone? Why did they walk away? We know he was writing in the dirt, but we don't know what he was writing. Um, all we know is they all turned and walked away. And it wasn't because they were just maybe, it could have been, I guess, that they were just convicted of their sin personally. Maybe they, you know not necessarily adultery, but some other sin. And I, well, I guess I'm not perfect, so I can't throw a stone. That isn't how the law was applied in the Old Testament, and Jesus was alive during the Old Testament period. Understand that. Not until his death was the New Testament. Okay, So the Old Testament is still in force, and they were required to stone these people, required by God. So how did Jesus get them to not stone her without breaking the law is the question because he never broke any laws. He always kept the law. Um, the, the only thing you can come up with, the only witnesses that were there were probably the guy that she was with, was in the audience, was there. One of the witnesses. Um, that's my best guess. We, we don't know, and we don't, we don't need to go into great detail on it, but, um, or get caught up in it, but there was a reason they all had to throw their rocks down, because the first people to throw the rocks had to be the one that were witnesses to it, and then the question comes up, as the inquiry comes up, how did you know she was there doing that? Did you set her up? I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into that. And if they set her up, then they're guilty also, and they deserve death. I mean, so there's a whole lot there that's going on where Jesus could say, okay, whoever witnesses step forward. He wasn't stopping the stoning. He said, that's right, let's get on with this. Witnesses, step forth and throw the first stone. And none of them did. Something was going on there. And so I believe the the conspiracy against her was exposed and they couldn't do anything else, they'd be throwing rocks at themselves. You know? um, and so God puts this into, into motion here, knowing that that story was going to come up later on. Witnesses have to throw the first rocks. And that's going to come out later on when, Jesus, and when they bring this lady to Jesus. So I just think that's neat. Anyway, make sure that they do it first, then everybody else. So the death penalty instituted by God. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall come to the priests, 
the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. So if you get to a sticky situation, you can't figure out who did it, and we've had those trials, right? We call them mistrials, or um, you know, the jury can't come to a conclusion. Well, they don't get acquitted. They have to go further then. We need to go to a higher court then to figure out the ruling, which is where our court system set up. We've got our local, and then you've got um, regional or, or uh, uh, districts. How do they? I don't know what the word is. Um, it's district, isn't it? And then, uh, and then, you, and then you go to you got finally the Supreme Court, and so things can work their way up the chain, so that uh, the wisest of the land uh, can uh, pronounce judgment. But it doesn't go unpunished. We don't just say, "Well, we can't figure it out." Oh well, better luck next time. No, um, no plea deals back then either. Um, there was no way to get out of this for a lesser charge. You, you weren't allowed to just lower charges to get this case done with. Uh, the case was the case. And so that's where you can see our system's been corrupted a little bit for sake of speed, um, financial situations. Some of us understand that. Um, the, the, court has, the courts are clogged. Um, uh, and so we, we try to get rid of the easy ones by just reducing them, plead guilty to a lesser charge. We can get on with this. Um, and that's really not justice. Uh, things, are, things aren't going like they're supposed to, and we pay the price for that. But you can see here, he says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to find out, and they're going to tell you what to do. And here's what he says to the guys who hear the judgment from the judge. And you should be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge or the man shall die. So not only is the person guilty of the crime, but if you decide that, yeah, they're just too harsh, we're not going to do that, you get death. Even if it was a more minor offense, understand that? Even if death penalty wasn't on the table for the, uh, for the perpetrator, um, or for the alleged perpetrator, um, the person who hears the ruling and says, okay, this is what they say, if they don't follow through with the higher authority, the ruling, then you die. It's a very serious issue. There's the sin of presumption. This is what this is called, the sin of presumption. Um, and there's other places where presumption is, is, is picked up in Scripture. And it's not when you, you focus on gossip and you focus on adultery and you focus on murder and stealing, and we all know those. But the, the sin of presumption is a very big deal for God. He never wants us to assume that we know better than him. That's what sin of presumption is. I presume to know better than the judge. Um, the sin of presumption is I don't know what God's will is, but I'm going to do my will anyway and see if God will come alongside of me. It's a sin of presumption to assume that you know what God's heart is or God's mind is on the matter. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. He was afraid of it spreading. I don't want a whole nation thinking they know my heart, thinking they know my mind, without inquiring of my heart, without inquiring of my mind, without listening to me. There's a danger of our Christianity being put on autopilot. I've been through Sunday school. I graduated. I'm in the big room now. You know, um, I've read through my Bible several times, and now I just kind of wing it. I kind of just kind of figured, well, I think this is how God feels about this. I think this is how God feels. And we don't pray anymore. We're not in that constant contact with our God, with our judge, to find out his heart on the matter. 
several times in Scripture, you'll find the same scenario with God's different advice for them. Shall we go up to this city? No. Oh. We thought we were supposed to conquer the land. Yar, but I don't want you to go up to this city now. Not with that many people or whatever reason. He's got lots of things he does. No, you've got too many people. Or no, not this time. Or no, you've got a problem in the camp. Several times he'll stop them from going on with what would, we would presume God would want us to do. No, hold on, you've got sin in the camp. We need to take care of that first. And when that's taken care of, then you can move forward with my plan. Oh, because oh, we were just going to go. And sometimes David did, didn't he? David did go up and say, come on, we're going we're to wipe them out as we did before. And they got wiped out. And he comes back all mad. God, why did you wipe us out? Because you didn't inquire. We have to be careful of that. That sin of presumption in our walk with Jesus Christ. I ask about everything. Well, what harm is it in taking this job? I don't know what harm is in taking that job, but God knows what harm might be taking that job. What's in the harm of marrying her? I found her in church. I don't know what's wrong with not marrying her, but maybe you better ask God, you know, um, and so on. What does God think about it? Verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, they're going to do that. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set for a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses to himself or for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses for the Lord uh, has said to you, you shall not return that way again. In other words, you're going to have this king. Some are going to want to take you back to Egypt so you can make more money. Don't do it. That's not the guy for you. Don't, don't pick a foreigner. It needs to be one of your brethren who know all this stuff, who know God, who've grown up with him, who've studied. Uh, we need that. That's the king you want. Um, but you can't have that. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Watch out for that kind of guy. Don't just because you're king doesn't mean you need to have a bunch of wives. And we know David and Solomon both um, disobeyed that order. Uh, Lest his heart turn away, uh, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. God was concerned with the king's heart, um, well, becoming in love with himself. To the point where it doesn't matter what, what God says. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to have as many wives as I want. I'm going to have as many, much gold and silver as I want. I'm, I'm the king. It was always supposed to be civil service, basically. It was always supposed to be a place of honor, of course, and rule and authority and a lot of responsibility, but never a place for gain like this. Gaining Egypt or leading the people away from God or getting more wives or having more gold for yourself. It was never meant for that. Verse 18, Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, and the Levites. Now this book we see in chapter 31 of 20, 31, 24. Chapter 31, verse 24, Deuteronomy, Moses finishes the law and puts the law inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, And it's from that that the king was supposed to copy down his portion. And if you know anything about copying back then, it was not an easy process. Every time they came to the Lord's name, they'd have to get new ink, a new pen, uh, wash themselves, go through all the sacrifices, and then write his name, and then they would go back to writing like they were. If they made one mistake, they had to redo the page, the whole page. They had to redo it all and have it checked and double-checked. I mean, it was a process. So when the king writes the book, believe me, you know it by the time you're done. Every jot, 
every tittle, he says. Not one of those things is to be removed from the law. And he would write it. I want you to write that down. I want you to write it carefully. I want you to make your own copy of it. It's your copy. And it shall be with him. Keep it with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and, this, and these statutes. This is important. In 2 Kings chapter 22, a little boy king comes up. Little Josiah becomes king. And this is after Manasseh. As you go through the kings, you'll read these. Manasseh, not a great guy. His dad was great. Hezekiah loved the Lord. His kid becomes king. Manasseh didn't love the Lord. And he reigned for 55 years and forgot the Bible, forgot about the temple, let it fall into all sorts of decay, went on with pagan worship, brought everything, all the people back to Egypt, basically, in their own land. And then this little boy, Josiah, becomes king after this Manasseh, this terrible king. And Josiah says, oh, look at the house. You know, he's eight years old when he becomes king. Little tiny kid. He's got a lot of advisors and helpers, of course. And when he's old enough, he looks at the house of the Lord and he says, this isn't the way it's supposed to look. He just knows that. So we need to start taking all the money that you've ever received, because I know you've still been collecting money. You just haven't been using it for the ministry. All that money you've got in storehouses, now start fixing stuff. Just give it to them. You just start giving it to the contractors and let them all do that. That's literally what he says. Give it to the carpenters. Give it to the artists. Just start giving it to them. And we don't need an account of it because they're faithful. Just give them the money. We don't need receipts. Just get it done. Let's get this. And while they're working on it, one of the priests who's working in this temple, getting it back in order again, finds this book that they're talking about, the book of Moses, the Old Testament that he's written, the book of the law. And he hands it to this guy, this emissary who comes from the king. He says, hey, we've tell, tell the king we found this book. And he brings this book back to King Joseph. He, lead, he, looks, he says, hey, the guys want me to tell you they found a book. It's literally written like that. We found a book. They don't have any idea how important this is. And Josiah sits down and reads it. And he realizes what it is. And it says he tore his clothes. He says, we are in big trouble as a nation. And he begins to offer sacrifices and ask for forgiveness and inquire, inquire of the Lord for us what we should do since we've been so rebellious against him for so long. Guys, I believe in our country we've lived in a famine for God's word for such a long time. We've been living in a time of Manasseh in the church and there's something about that when you discover the Bible, not reading from the Bible, not getting little stories about the Bible, but actually studying the Scriptures and reading verse by verse, chapter by chapter, from Genesis to Revelation, you begin to tear your clothes. And you realize how far we've gone. I don't know how many stories we've heard from people that say, I've been in church my whole life and I've never studied the Bible like this. I can't believe how much is here. This is amazing. And their eyes are opened. And they're a little humbled and they're a little excited at the same time but they're changed. This is exciting when God says this. I want every king to write down a copy of, the, of this book that they may know it. I want them to keep it with them and I want them to read it. That's the heart of a king. Now, most of us will never be kings. Fair, fair safe bet. Thank goodness, right? Who'd want to be? But keep God's word here close to you and read it. Every single day. There's a reason we need to read every day. First of all, we need to be reminded. But also, we need to let it go deeper and deeper and deeper and permeate every part of our lives and to change us. And we begin to act according to the Scriptures. We don't act according to our own ways. We act according to the Scriptures by being around it and immersing ourselves in it and being around God. And so he tells him to do that. Um, 
and Josiah, just wonderful little story of that, of that blessing of the nation when a king who truly seeks out the Lord and reads his word and changes the country, they begin to cut down the pillars. They begin to just change the whole country back to God. It's amazing um, because he was convicted by it and, and, and let himself be convicted by it. Anyway, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. There's a blessing for everybody involved when they begin to do what God's word tells them to do. I want you to prolong your days. I want you to be careful. And I want you to, uh, to not turn aside from it and not to be lifted up. We read about, or we sang about humble, being humble. Um, humbling is always an, it's an easy thing when God's doing humble, when, when you're humbled by him. In other words, when you're in the, like J.C. was praying, when, you, when you're in the presence of God, it's a humbling experience. It's not a humiliating experience. It's a humbling experience because you see how great he is. You see how he feels about you, and you're pretty well aware of who you are. And yet when you see how he smiles on you, it's a humbling experience in a good way. And then there's humiliation. That's a whole other thing. And God wanted to protect the kings, and he wants to protect us from humiliation, where we think we're higher than we really are. That humiliating walk to the end of the table. Remember the story? If you find you're seated, you know, oh, there's a long table, and you sit yourself in the place of honor without being asked to, and you'd hate for the host to tell you, could you move down? That's for somebody else. That's a walk of humiliation. On the other hand, a walk of humility is from the other end of the table. I'm just going to sit down here. I can't even believe I'm in the room with these guys. So you sit down there and they say, no, 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 you're the guest of honor. Why are you down there? Come on up, come on up, sit right by me at the host. That's a walk of humble. It's a humble walk. They're two different things. God always wanted the king to be humble because um, it's way better than humiliation. And it's the same for us this morning. Same for us. We want to walk away from God's word being humbled, um, but we don't want humiliation. And so if we listen to God's word and we obey it, um, we'll never have that walk. We'll always be safe. We'll always be there if you consider others higher than yourself. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these two chapters, Lord. Um, a lot of them, uh, a lot of it, it's maintenance. Uh, Moses was just letting the people know, here's what I want you to do. And for some of us uh, who are walking, obviously, with you in the New Testament, we don't have these feasts anymore. But we do remember that they all reminded us of you. And so this morning, we remember you, God. We remember what you've done for us, that you were the perfect sacrifice that we walk in you. And to walk in you is to walk humbly with you. And we're, we're called to that. And so God, help us to walk humbly with you, seeing who you are completely in your majesty, with all your power, um, and, and then with a very real realization of who we are. And yet you call us friends. And that's a, a humble moment for us. And we thank you for that. Thank you that you call us friends. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for how you feel about us. Lord, I pray that we'd walk the rest of this week that way in, in, in humility, um, lifting other people up as we, can, as we get the opportunity, but also uh, exalting you and glorifying you in all that we do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a good rest of the week, guys.